0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, it's great to have all of you in this uh, beautiful almost fall morning here in, uh, in Connecticut. I know you're joining from uh, many places throughout Connecticut and hopefully from all over the world. for This very, very important Grand Rounds. Uh, I think on the screen you're seeing a slide just as a reminder of a virtual evening workshop, which is the new asthma guidelines, integrating guidelines into practice to prepare for respiratory season, very important. Uh, by our own uh, Dr. Collins and Dr. Hollenbach. Uh, So please register. It's coming up 6.30 to 8 o'clock, a virtual conference room via Zoom. So thank you for that. Before we ask Dr. Lau to introduce our speaker today, I do want to remind everyone why this is such a special Grand Rounds. This is a Grand Rounds that we started two years back uh, when Dr. Altman retired from uh, the full, busy clinical practice, although he really isn't retired because he is very busy providing mentorship and input to members of the Division of Hematology and Oncology, as he always has done. Arnie, uh, it is really an honor to have you, to have this lecture on your behalf. And today we have a fantastic speaker that's gonna give us some you know, amazing new information on therapies that are available for uh, kids with cancer. Just as a reminder, uh, Dr. Allman started back in 1973, quite a while back, and I have some, some beautiful letters of when he was hired, uh, You know, just an esteemed professor. He was the only one for many years. Today we have a very large division of hematology oncology that is following in his tradition, in his footsteps, and uh, just enormous amount of work, what they're doing, and, and really uh, honoring his legacy for so many years. Uh, again, we have uh, under our leadership of Dr. Lau, Dr. Michael Isakoff and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Lau now come to, to introduce our speaker and I know you're going to enjoy this presentation today I have lots of questions at the end and we'll come back with Q&A session at the end so Dr. Lau please
1: thank you Dr. Salisa. in addition to uh, celebrating the uh, Altman lecture there's another important reason for this uh, grand round because September is a very busy month for uh, hematology oncology folks because September is both the sickle cell awareness month as well as the um, childhood cancer awareness month so we are very busy uh, celebrating uh, both of those events and i just want to sh- remind people of the uh, childhood cancer uh, situation and that is uh, every day there are 43 kids that are diagnosed with cancer in the united states so that come up to about 16000 per year and then 300,000 worldwide. And unfortunately, we are still not at the point where we can cure every uh, child with cancer. Uh, so basically, in 2019, 84% um, long term survival uh, is now achieved. But compared to the 70s, this is still pretty remarkable because at that time it was only 58% five year overall survival. So basically only one uh, one out of eight children with cancer will not survive uh, his or her disease. So we have still a lot of work to do. But just to remind people how far we have come along, and this is uh, some survival curves uh, that have been accumulated over the years, starting from uh, 1968 in the bottom, all the way to uh, the 2000. And you can see that the survival uh, is increasingly uh, improved uh, over the years and then uh, this is a comparison with uh, the rest of the uh, cancer in the united states over time Uh, again starting in the 75 all the way to the 2000. Uh, why we have such a significant uh, improved outcome there are many reasons as listed here but i just wanted to Uh, mentioned the last point, and that is uh, with better advocacy, we have been able to uh, um, uh, collectively uh, improve the uh, support in um, uh, doing uh, research and improving the care for these children. For example, the NIH uh, budget, only about 4% of it is directed towards um, uh, pediatric cancer research. So we need to do a lot better. But fortunately, there are a lot of support from the community, as well as from the Parents Advocacy Group as well. So we're very excited about the the prospect for uh, uh, childhood cancers. and today we have even more reasons to to get excited because of uh, what uh, our speaker, Dr. Gottschalk, is going to uh, tell us, Uh, and that is in addition to all these conventional therapies, now cell and gene therapy is coming onto the center stage. Uh, Dr. Gottschalk, as you could guess from his last name, last name uh, was born and raised in Germany. Uh, When he uh, finished his uh, medical studies there, he decided to become a medical geneticist. So he came to the U.S. to work with uh, uh, the uh, eminent um, Dr. Savio Wu uh, in uh, gene therapy at that time at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And then he subsequently enrolled in the residency program at Baylor Texas Children's Hospital, where he discovered his interest in uh, hematology oncology. So subsequent to his uh, residency in general pediatrics, he uh, enrolled in the uh, hematology oncology fellowship at Baylor uh, Texas Children's Cancer Center, uh, where I also spent 23 years there. So uh, he, after he finished his uh, uh, fellowship, he uh, joined the um, cancer center there as well as the newly formed uh, uh, Center for Cell and Gene Therapy, uh, where he rose very quickly from assistant professor to a full professor. In 2017, he uh, got recruited to St. Jude to become their chair in the Department of uh, uh, bone marrow transplant, and cell therapy, uh, where he is now. So Steve and I share a lot of interesting stories <laughs> together because we overlap for so many years. I just want to name one w- very interesting, very relevant to him, Monk. Uh, he, I think he was a first-year first fellow, and maybe I was the first or the second year attending there. There was a patient that was life-flighted to us from uh, a rural area, uh, with a white cell count of like close to two hundred thousand, we knew that this probably is some kind of aggressive leukemia so we quickly did it, the um, uh, diagnosis based on a flow study and that was actually done on a weekend and a holiday so that was quite remarkable within a few hours we got the diagnosis but we decided to do something even more creative <laughs> because at that time you are required to register the patient in one of the cooperative group trial before you are allowed to give them any therapy which includes uh, intrathecal therapy but to complete the diagnostic workup you have to do the spinal tap but you are not allowed to give the intrathecal therapy until you have enrolled the patient which means that you have to do a second spinal tap so we said the patient is very sick we need to uh, initiate treatment as quickly as possible. We cannot wait for the next day to do the second uh, lumbar puncture to give the intrathecal. So what we came up with was pretty, pretty creative now that I look back. So I, uh, Dr. Gottschalk, sitting in front of the uh, patient uh, at, in the ICU bed, sedated. He was about to put the needle into the, uh, uh, the, the back while i called the uh, cooperative group uh, registrar to register the patient so as soon as he pushed the needle in collected the spinal fluid we got the patient registered and then we gave the uh, intrathecal so the next day when we told the chief about this he was shocked <laughs> what did you guys do <laughs> but it was all for the benefit of the patient because we didn't think that we have to wait another day to give patient the, the chemo. So anyway, so I have lots of uh, fond memories working with Dr. Gottschalk, and I'm so happy that he was willing to come up here in person to tell us his exciting journey uh, in cell therapy. Dr. Godstock. Thank you, Ching, for the kind
2: introduction and also and everyone for inviting me to come. Uh, to give uh, grand rounds and uh, what I thought, um, and these are kind of my disclosures, which really have no impact, but I'm gonna talk to you uh, today. So the objectives of my talk is really to describe how cell therapy was developed for hemolignancies, malignancies, identify which types of cell products have been evaluated in clinical studies, and then really discuss challenges and opportunities in developing these. But uh, before I get started, uh, I would like to highlight, you know, why I decided to give uh, this talk a short history. Um, there are several reasons. I think it's good to look back. Uh, I think most succinctly, Santana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Goethe, a very famous German poet, said, everything clever has already been sought. We must only try to think it again. And of course, these are kind of positive outlooks on history and probably the most, and probably, you know, as a lot of things, probably truth is in the middle. And I think the most cynical uh, comment is probably from Voltaire, who said, history is a lie commonly agreed on. So. If you kind of really look back how cell therapy has started, it really didn't start, it got off to a good start. There was, I would say nowadays, probably a celebrity doc in Switzerland, Dr. Paul Nienhans, who treated the Pope, also the first chancellor of Germany, Adenauer, and he came up with a cell product. And because he was quite famous, people started to use it. So the American Cancer Society in 1963, he came out with an editorial stating that this type of therapy has no benefit in the treatment of cancer in human beings. Of course, a lot of things happen in the field, but still nowadays, uh, you know, we have to be reminded of um, scientific rigor, and there was a recent editorial uh, in uh, one of the journals, which is really focused on translating preclinical findings into the clinic for cell and gene therapy, which uh, you know uh, had the title of "Evidence Generation of Reproducibility in Cell and Gene Therapy Research: A the Call to Action." So, while uh, of course the field has greatly improved mm-hmm. its vigor, rigor, and scientific reproducibility, we still have a long way to go. If you now look at the start of stem cell transplantation, it got off to a rocky start, and this shows the number of transplants conducted in the United States. And it probably has to do with the survival curves, which Dr. Lau showed in the beginning. In the late 50s, the majority of patients, for example, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia died. So I think there was great desperation and trying to test out new things, but clearly transplant was introduced too early. The majority of patients died either of engraftment failure or graft versus host disease, and actually a lot of uh, leaders in the field thought that transplantation will be only a footnote in history because it will never could be developed as a cure- uh, curative approach. Uh, for pediatric or adults with cancer. But that of course is not the case, otherwise I would not give uh, talk to you today. So if you look at the timeline of transplants with the first one being conducted in uh, the late uh, 50s, the 1980s saw the introduction of donor lymphocyte infusion after transplant to use the donor's immune system to uh, fight infection and relapse. That was followed in the 90s by the first use of virus-specific T cells to either prevent reactivation or active uh, viral infection. And then, of course, uh, starting again with preclinical studies in the early 90s, CAR T cell therapies took off, accumulating in the FDA approval of the first CAR T-cell product in 2017. And I think it's important to point out that the first approval was for a pediatric indication, highlighting that these types of therapies can be developed in uh, pediatric patients very successfully without causing unnecessary harm. That transplant really was developed into uh, a therapeutic of course, is due to a large group of investigators uh, all over the world. But the eminent leader in the field was Donald Thomas at the Hutch, and for his contribution to the field was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology in 1919, together with jo- Joseph Murray, who actually was a pioneer of uh, kidney transplantation uh, in medicine. Since transplant is a risky business, uh, you know, it's high risk medicine. We really put the patient, I would say, in imminent danger. It has developed into a highly regulated type of medicine. And there is uh, an international registry called CIBMTR to which we have to report all our transplant outcomes. And then Transplant Center In the United States, but all over the world, uh, are in part accredited by an organization called FACT, Foundation for the Accreditation of Cellular Therapy. While on one side it is a lot of work, now there is a wonderful data set where you can actually then ask questions, how are we actually doing nowadays? And that is what I would like to do in the next couple of minutes with you. Review transplant trends. Review what is the indication for pediatric transplant. What types of cells do we use? What are conditioning regimen and outcomes? And as I said, the majority of data comes from CIBMTR. Again, I think it's beautiful data because it puts the data from all centers together. So there's really not a lot of bias. So if you look at the uh, number of transplant performed in the United States, and this is adult and transplant combined, there is a steady increase uh, since its beginning in the uh, early 80s. However, there is a hump. And I would, would like to point out that that hump was due to scientific misconduct. In the late 80s, there was a physician, uh, Werner Botsweda, in South Africa, who had published papers that you can significantly improve the outcome of uh, women with metastatic breast cancer doing high dose chemotherapy followed by autologous transplant. And again, it were desperate times, so that therapeutic approach took off. However, it could never be replicated. And when actually ASCO sent a delegation to South Africa, they found out that most of the data was falsified. So therefore, there was then you know, a dramatic decline, when everyone realized that that is unfortunately not an option to improve the outcome from metastatic breast cancer. But since then, you know, there has been a steady increase for both autologous and autologous transplants. If you look overall now for trend, and I'm focusing here on acute lymphoblastic leukemia and AML, and I know it's two busy graphs, so I kind of drew over the lines for pediatric cancer. In the end, since the beginning of the century, there is roughly the same number of transplant for uh, pediatric ALL and AML in the United States. This could be surprising to you because, as Dr. Lau pointed out, the overall outcome of these malignancies have improved. But at the same time, we have gotten much better in using transplant, so therefore we now transplant patients which we probably would have not considered for transplantation 20 years ago. If you look at indication, Clearly for allogeneic transplant on the malignant side, the majority of transplant conducted in the United States is for acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia uh, and myelodysplastic syndrome. Of course, there is a big uh, group also of non-malignant diseases, which include sickle cell disease and uh, of course, also immunodeficiency and for autologous transplant. The number one indication, I believe, remains neuroblastoma uh, and also selected subsets of brain tumors who benefit from high dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue. If you look at the donor types uh, and uh, you're on the far left are the less than 18 years old, roughly a quarter of transplant we use match related donors. Then there are other relatives, mainly parents, uh, performing haploidentical transplant. Then there is roughly a third uh, doing unrelated uh, transplant, and roughly 20% is uh, cord blood. And if you now look, uh, you know, in the uh, older age groups, it stays the same. However, the number of or percentage of cord blood transplant decreases, which is. Uh, understandable since cord blood, you only have a very small fixed number of cells. And as patients grow, they really outgrow the number of cells which are can given with a single transplant. If you look how we perform our transplant for matched related donor, in pediatrics, we still do bone marrow harvest. Uh, however, very interestingly, if you look on the adult side, uh, they majority use peripheral blood-mobilized stem cells. Why pediatricians are more conservative has several reasons. First, you know, we transplant our patients very early in life and really would like that uh, you know, their transplant or their stem cell lasts uh, the entire life of the patients. Um, so that was one of the main reasons why we started and more recently, there is actually some evidence that patients who receive a peripheral blood collected stem cells have a higher risk of chronic GVHD. And therefore, I believe that in pediatrics, while it might be easier, at least in grown up um, patients to put a, a IV in and collect stem cells, that in pediatrics will probably stick in the near future with performing uh, bone marrow harvests in the operating room. So what type of transplant are we doing? And again, it's a busy graph. And therefore I highlighted, uh, I think the most important change uh, uh, since over the last decade, and that is more and more haploidentical transplants are being performed in which the cells are either collected from uh, mom or dad, or uh, in the adult setting for a sibling. And you might ask yourself, why did this happen? And this really has to do with pioneering work uh, conducted by Rick Jones and Hopkins, which introduced the use of cytoxin after transplant to reduce the risk of graft-versus-host disease. And uh, the green portion of this graph is the uh, haploidentical transplants, which are formed with cytoxin. And you can really see as a number of transplants, uh, haploidentical transplant, increase, the majority of these are performed by giving patients cytoxin after the transplant to reduce the risk of GVHD. So. Focusing now on ALL and AML, you know, a big question in the field always has been, what is the type of conditioning regimen to give? And there is a remarkable difference with ALL and AML, While for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, we still have to give radiation. And the main reason for doing it is that we would have to prevent relapse or Putting it in other words, if you do not use a radiation-based conditioning regimen for ALL, your risk of relapse is definitely significantly increased. However, this is not the case for AML, and therefore the majority of transplant conducted nowadays for AML do conditioning regimen without radiation. And that is, of course, preferable in pediatric patients because it dramatically reduces the risk of long term toxicities of patients who remain in complete remission. We've also started to use reduced intensity regimen, and there the goal of the transplant regimen is in the end mainly to prevent space of the incoming graft and prevent rejection. And there, of course, is no difference between uh, ALL and AML because the therapy in the end is not targeted to uh, prevent um, relapse with um, killing off leukemic cells during the conditioning regimen process. So how have, are we doing? This shows outcome for AML, ALL and AML for the last decade, And uh, in general, I would say regardless of stem cell source, match-related donor or not, the outcomes are very encouraging. This having long-term outcomes uh, in a second remission of around 60 to 70% for uh, ALL and roughly uh, the same for AML. If you look in the registry, what happens to patients who have active disease, and I first would like that you focus on the AML side, you see this dramatic reduction in overall survival, highlighting that if you transplant patients with active disease results in a significant poor outcome. The ALL data really should should look like the AML data. And within the registry, how relapsed uh, never in CR is defined uh, results in erroneous graft because, unfortunately, also for ALL, if you transplant patients who have minimal residual disease or active disease, the outcome continues to be poor. However, overall, we have made significant advances over the last uh, 20 years, shown here. Cumulative five years increases in survival rate from the early 2000s to uh, 2018 for ALL as well as AML. So, if you now ask yourself, why do patients still die after transplant, or what are the major causes of death? And as a comparator, I also put up uh, on top. Um, as a first pie chart, autologous transplant. So if you look at disease or mortality within the first three months after transplant for autologous transplants, there are the big three: primary disease, infection, and organ failure. This is very similar if you perform match-related donor transplant, where again. Uh, Almost half of the patients, uh, if they die, die from their underlying disease and infection and organ failure uh, remain number two and three. On the allogeneic side, it is interesting because early after transplant, actually the percentage of patients who die from recurrent disease is much, much lower and a higher percentage of patients die from uh, organ failure. And of course, the number one organ failure post transplant is lung toxicity. This makes up greater than 95% of all organ failure. If you look more long term, between three months and three years, uh, if you have an autologous transplant, you will die if you die from your recurrent disease. Uh, And Roughly for MATCH-related donors, there is really not much of a difference between uh, less or more of three months. And now, if you look at the MATCH-unrelated donor setting and also the Haplu identical setting, this looks pretty much like for matched related donors. So, to summarize this part of my talk, through, I think, a checkered history, transplant has become Really, an integral part of our treatment armory for pediatric cancers, outcome of transplant have improved over the last two decades. Uh, and importantly, transplant in CR provides the best cure for long-term cures, and the current challenges uh, really remain relapse, infectious complication, and organ uh, failures. Since uh, you can really not use cell therapy to prevent organ failures. In the next part of my talk, I really would like to focus on what investigators have done to use cell products to try to reduce the risk of relapse and also treat infectious complications. And as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, it all started with donor lymphocytes or domolymphocyte infusion. Donor lymphocyte infusion are a of cells, which contain alloreactive cells, virus-specific T cells, and hopefully also tumor-specific T cells. So groups have developed different technologies now to enrich these cell population before giving them to patients. For example, you can ex vivo deplete alloreactive, alloreactive T cells, you can select out virus-specific T cells and also groups have started to select out tumor-specific T cells to increase their potency. Likewise, with the event of gene therapeutic approaches, you can now engineer lymphocytes with a safety switch or suicide gene, which you can activate once uh, patients develop side effects And lastly, not but least, you can also now improve the anti-tumor activity of these cells by genetically engineering them either to uh, express a tumor-specific alpha beta TCR or a chimeric antigen receptor. I briefly would like to highlight some of the literature uh, which I'd summarize in the cartoon. Uh, In the mid, uh, In the middle of the last century, groups initially started to use methods to uh, in vivo deplete alloreactive T cells, but this turned out to be rather cumbersome. So several investigators have started to um, engineer or select out um, alloreactive cells before giving donor lymphocytes. And the most promising and widely used approach is that you actually deplete naive T cells out of the lymphocytes before you give them to patients because the majority of T cells which cause GVHD are within the naive cell compartment. Genetic modification or safety switches have also been um, uh, uh, investigated either using uh, a suicide switch derived from herpes simplex virus, and uh, more recently, uh, groups have also engineered uh, inducible caspase molecules, which can activate, uh, which once activated, very efficiently uh, kill lymphocytes in patients which uh, induce GVHD. So these are kind of examples where you can try to reduce the alloreactivity activity of uh, donor lymphocyte infusion. Since now 30 years, groups have also explored the infusion of virus-specific T cells. And really, this started with work by uh, Stan Riddell and Phil Greenberg at Sahaj then also studies by Rick O'Reilly at MSKCC and studies uh, by Cleo Rooney, uh, Malcolm Brenner and Helen Heslop um, at St. Jude. And these groups showed unequivocally that if you transfer either CMV specific T cells or EBV specific T cells into patients, you can control their infections. They also made two other very important uh, observations in humans. The first was that if you only give CD8 T cells to patients, they tend to disappear. And that was shown in a CMV model or in uh, in CMV reactivation after allogeneic transplant. And the other very important information came out of an early paper with EBV-specific T cells which were genetically modified just to track him. And if you just look at the graph at the bottom, patients received gene-marked EBV-specific T cells, which then disappeared. However, within or one and a half years after transplant, the patient reactivated Epstein-Barr virus, and then you could detect a gene-marked single again. And this is one of the first examples in human that you can take cells, grow them in patients or grow them in the laboratory, infuse them back. And these cells then really contribute to the long term memory against a viral infection in humans. While these initial studies were rather cumbersome and only focused on one virus. Subsequent studies really have focused on not only making the process more efficient, but also targeting more virus. While initial studies were focused on EBV, subsequent studies looked at targeting uh, in addition CMV and adenovirus. And in the latest iteration of these studies, up to five viruses can be simultaneously targeted. And while it initially took three months to generate this product, we can nowadays do uh, do it um, in 10 days, highlighting that these approaches really should be feasible and readily now available for uh, a larger group of patients. While virus-specific T cell or the adoptive transfer for virus-specific T cell work very nicely, groups also try to do that for tumor antigen-specific T cells. However, that turned out to be much more difficult because of two reasons. First of all, virus-specific T cells have a much higher frequency in your peripheral blood. You probably do not think about it, but if you had as a child mono Roughly 0.5% of your circulating lymphocytes are busy every day controlling Epstein-Barr virus. However, of course, the frequency of tumor-specific T cells is much, much more lower. In addition, virus-specific T cells in general recognize a foreign virus antigen, whereas many tumor-specific T cells recognize an endogenous antigen, and there are differences in T cell affinity. So therefore, novel technologies had to be developed to uh, really grow these type of cells and or of course genetically engineer them. This just shows uh, two examples. One study which was recently published, where uh, a group at Baylor College of Medicine Infused multi tumor antigen specific T cells to patients uh, post transplant for AML and MDS. And at least in the adjuvant settings, they observed very nice complete responses. And uh, more recently, a similar study was also conducted for pediatric patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And Similar studies have also been performed now with a genetic approach, whereas a group of Phil Greenberg at the Hutch introduced a W2-1 specific T cell receptor into EBV specific T cells. And again, in the atrium setting really showed remarkable duration of responses or complete remissions after transplant in comparison to a historic control. So. To summarize this part of my talk, uh, again, over the last 20 years, we really have developed a much better understanding how to manipulate donor lymphocytes and really harness the activity of virus specific T cells uh, in these products. And however, for leukemic specific T cells, this work is just in the beginning and while these cells work very well in the adjuvant setting as shown in the therapeutic setting the activity overall was limited so in the last part of my talk i now want to focus on car therapy for heme malignancies and uh, again want to in the big picture uh, give you an overview of what has happened with the field uh, uh, in regards to uh, mainly treatment of AOL. And it all started with the design of this chimeric antigen receptor, which really brings together both arms of our immune system, because the specificity of this receptor comes from a monoclonal antibody, whereas the singling machinery of the T of these receptors come from the T cells. So you could think about it, it's like a perfect marriage of the the most effective uh, immune responses uh, we have. I do not want to spend too much time on the mechanism, how cells recognize tumor cells, but it's important to understand that CAR T cells recognize target cells or cancer cells in a fundamentally different way than normal cells. The normal cell recognizes or normal T cell recognizes a peptide in the context of an MHC molecule, whereas a car recognizes the protein on the cell surface independent of the MHC molecule. And this, of course, has fundamental, practical implication because we can use a single car for all cancers regardless of the HLA type of the patient, as long as the cancer expresses the targeted antigen. This was a niche science. When I joined the field, You know, we, everyone thought it was interesting, but no one thought that it would uh, you know, become reality, at least in my lifetime. But as you see at the number of PubMed publications, something happened roughly a decade ago. And these were the first case reports that CD19 CAR T cells had potent anti-tumor activity pro-lymphoma, CLL, and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And because of that, there's been tremendous interest in this therapeutic approach. And nowadays, there are roughly 1000 active CAR T cell therapy being conducted in the United States. You know, if you look at this map, you should really pause and wonder why are there so few in Europe? Why are so many in China? It has to do with the regulatory environment. The European Union is extremely strict when it comes to introducing genetically modified cells into humans. So it's been remarkably difficult uh, for European investigators to really conduct studies. On the other hand, China is probably a little bit too lax with conducting these uh, type of studies and therefore it really has outpaced all other countries in the world in conducting these type of studies. The initial car design turned out to be really only a prototype and subsequent studies highlighted that you only do not need only T cell activation, but you also need T-cell co-stimulation, and groups introduced additional signaling molecules into these CARs. And uh, the pioneer for doing that for CD19 CAR was Michel, Michel Sedelin. And then, of course, Steve Rosenberg and Jim Kochendorfer did a uh, majority of the early clinical studies with CD19, CD28 CARs. For 4 BB cars, which is another coastal molecule, this was developed by Dario Campana when he was at St. Jude and was then translated into the clinic for adults by Carl June and Steve Rupp for pediatric patients. And this is just a reminder uh, to everyone that the cars which are currently FDA approved all look a little bit different. They all use the same antigen binding domain, but then there are differences in regards to the structure, including the co molecule which is used. I really do not want to go through a lot of studies, but just have highlighted here two recent large-scale retrospective analysis uh, uh, combining Almost 40 studies highlighting the potent anti tumor activity of CD19 CAR T cells for lymphoma, CLL, and ALL. And on the right side, you see the outcome of the registration trial of Kim Ryer for pediatric patients, which was conducted by Shannon Maud and Steve Rupp at CHOP, showing an overall survival at 12 months of 76%. So, what have we learned from these studies? First of all, while CD9 and CAR T cells are potent, we have to give a little bit of conditioning regimen to our patients because without, these cells don't work. As advertised, immunotherapy can cure leukemic cells which are chemorefractory. You have to include a costimulatory molecule and you could argue, is it CD28 for 41 BB? It probably depends on the indication which approach is better. Not surprisingly, targeting a single antigen may lead to immune escape. And lastly, not but least, there are can be significant toxicities with these approaches, including cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. And I briefly want to highlight some of these issues. If you look at studies of CD19 negative relapse, it really depends. It can be as high as 25%, as low as 8%. And very interestingly, you know, cancer is smart. It has developed different strategies, different mutations to um, get around a CD19 targeted attack shown on your lab left. Probably the most scary part for us is that it switches the lineage that has especially been uh, observed with ML. M- L1 fusion gene, uh, AOL, which return as AML. And then the last uh, mechanism of relapse really has with the production of these cells, which fortunately only occurs rarely, where in the product you by accident genetically modify a leukemic cell with a CD19 car. And then, of course, when this leukemic cells expresses CD19 and the CD19 CAR, the CAR hides the CD19 and therefore it presents as a CD19 negative relapse. So, how now to best target multiple antigens? And that is really uh, an area of active research. Should you give uh, CAR T cells sequentially with different specificity? Should you give them together? Should you design T cells which express two cars or should you design a car which recognizes both? And as I mentioned, there are numerous studies in progress. And right now, the best approach how to do this really has not been established. So what about side effects? CRS and neurotoxicity cytokine release syndrome neurotoxicity has have uh, been this or have been used by uh, CAR T-cells, and cytokines are a critical mediator. In addition, a recent study has highlighted that actually uh, brain neural cells of the endothelium, some subsets also express CD19, which could explain neurotoxicity in the context of CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. If you look in the literature, it had been very confusing. If you wanted to compare is this car product, does it have more CRS or neurotoxicity? And because of that, roughly now, two years ago, um, the American Society of Transplant and Cell Therapy has come out with a consensus statement. And if you look at it, at least for CRS, it's beautiful because you do not need to have any labs, you can stand at the End of a bedside and say, this patient has grade two, grade C, or grade four CRS, you only need to know the temperature. And of course, uh, neurotoxicity is a little bit um, more complicated because you have to do some assessment. But as with all areas in medicine, early intervention is key. The best, the most potent uh, molecule is the anti-IO6 receptor antibody, uh, tocilizumab and uh, encouraging studies have shown if you give tocilizumab early you do not prevent uh, the or you do not affect the anti-tumor activity of CD19 CAR T cells. Having gotten quite good at treating CRS and uh, neurotoxicity, a second syndrome really has emerged recently which can cause uh, significant complication, and that is CAR-HLH. Uh, interestingly, as shown here in two patients, it occurs after CRS. So normally, seven to ten days later, uh, it is uh, presents with high ferritin, fever, and it's importantly to diagnose because the first line of therapy for HLS is anakinra and not uh, tocilucimab. Uh, just to wrap up, besides CD19, there's lots of activity um, in uh, this HE malignancy space for lymphoid malignancy and also for uh, AML CAR-T cell therapies, studies are in progress. So to summarize this part of my to talk, you know, CAR T-cell therapy for B-cell malignancies and AML are FDA approved. Uh, For AML and T-cells, they are in progress. I think there are significant issues now with CD19 CAR T-cells, which really has to do with the fact how to use these cells best. Clearly, we need biomarkers. We have to figure out how to prevent relapse, and probably the most urgent question in pediatric uh, cancer is, what do we do with these patients once they achieve the CR? Should we observe them or should we proceed uh, to a consolidative allogeneic transplant? And rather than summarizing the entire talk, I would like to leave you with four unanswered questions in the field. And that is for cell therapy post-transplant, what is the best strategy for immune reconstitution? How to prevent relapse post-transplant? And for cell therapy outside the transplant setting, how can we achieve long term remission without transplant and how can we improve the efficacy of cell therapy for non-B cell malignancies? And in the end, I just have here also some references and then I want to highlight that we've built a large center to really support not only the transplant, but also the experimental cell therapy um, effort And uh, this just shows uh, a picture of our group uh, from before COVID. And I hope that we can have another group picture in a year from now. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much. That was uh, simply outstanding. Uh, Learned a lot and uh, I can see what you have been the recipient of many teaching awards in in your career. So thank you very much for making a very complicated topic, a simple, simple explanation to, to all of us that are not oncologists. We do have the mic open for questions. We had about 160 people that joined over the course of the lecture. I'm gonna ask Dr. Lau also to perhaps begin with a question.
1: Thank you, C, for an incredible lecture. So you emphasize on heme malignancy in this talk, but I still like you to spend maybe a few seconds telling us about the issues with uh, using this type of therapy with uh, especially you know, genetically engineered cells against solid tumors, and what's the prospect there?
2: For solid tumors, the therapies have not worked very well yet. Although you know they have been tested for the same amount of time. Actually, the first pediatric patient who ever got a CAR T-cell it was a GD2 CAR T-cell by Malcolm Brenner. <laughs> I think there are several issues. First of all is we really do not know what is a good, the best target to target. You know, CD19 is unique. It is completely bright in uniform expressed. And the majority of solid tumor targets we've gone afterwards so far are lowish expressed expression is heterogeneously. So clearly target antigen, tumor heterogeneity is an issue. The next issue is really the solid tumor microenvironment. You now, solid tumors create an immunosuppressive environment, which suppresses immune responses. In contrast to, for example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and actually, the initial data of ongoing AML CAR T cell therapy studies, also in pediatrics, do not look so promising. And I strongly believe is because the AML microenvironment looks like a solid tumor microenvironment, and then the last bucket, so to speak is about trafficking and homing. You know, leukemia lives in your marrow. So if you infuse lymphocytes by default, they end up uh, within the marrow, whereas the solid tumor might be somewhere else. And then also the physics of a solid tumor. It's full of uh, stroma. There is great interstitial pressure. So it's much, much more difficult for T cells to penetrate these. So I would say these are kind of the three kind of roadblocks uh, but you know i would um not be too pessimistic it just highlights that still a lot of research need to get done uh you know in this uh, in this field
0: thank you um I, I do have a question of course you know in the in the COVID era from your your patients this past year and a half, two years, that have undergone therapies, or uh, the combination of these therapies. How are they doing and have they gotten infected? Have they gotten seriously ill with COVID-19 or, or for the most part, not really?
2: Not, I think we've been very fortunate uh, that um, we have really not seen, um, you know, until now, a lot of, you know, COVID-19 infection in our patient population. But, you know, it might change now because uh, pandemic now seems to be becoming a pediatric pandemic, while until now it was an adult pandemic. Uh, But we have not seen it, but probably like your hospital, we've also been extremely rigorous in isolating patients and limiting, you know, who can visit children. So, you know, I think we have really probably done whatever is possible from an infectious disease control perspective.
0: So again, I want to thank you for accepting our invitation and to travel in the midst of the pandemic. Great to have you here, a fantastic presentation. I am certain Dr. Allman, who is online, is very happy to have heard the advances on the therapy of some of the patients that in the past perhaps could not be treated. So a really amazing future. Thank you, Dr. Lau for being with us. Thank you everyone for joining us. Please join us on Friday for Ask the Experts with Dr. John Shriver. And then next Tuesday, Dr. Hughes is going to present the Grand Rounds as well, so join us then. So be well, everyone. Be safe. Enjoy the week, and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org podcast grand rounds.